Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. Hope everyone's having a nice summer season as things in the art world begin to slow down until the fall. In this week's episode, we thought you would enjoy hearing an interesting panel conversation that our founder, Anders Peterson, recently moderated in London. The event was presented in partnership with Cultural Communications and hosted at Christie's in London. The panel was titled What's Hot and What's Not on the Blockchain, Examining the Digital Revolution of the Art World and Beyond. The speakers included Claudia Schurch, a specialist at Christie's, Cian Rodway, CEO of MDR and Tech, Bernadine Brocker-Weeder, CEO of Arcuro, and Alex Estoric, Editor-in-Chief at Right Click Save. We hope you enjoy the episode on this interesting topic. Thanks so much for listening. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Nina, and, and again, welcome to everyone here on a um, Thursday morning. Um, I'm excited to have a wide range of uh, expertise and stakeholders in the blockchain NFT market, and hopefully today we will um, give a little bit of an update of what's happened. I mean, the, this is a market that is changing fast, um, technology is moving, um, and maybe some of the perception that we've had about NFTs are changing, and hopefully we're going to explore models, what's happening on the creator side, um, looking a little bit at regulation, uh, looking at uh, various aspects. Um, but I'm delighted to have, a, as I said, a fantastic panel, and I'm going to start on my immediate uh, left, um, which is Bernadine Brackevider. She is the CEO of Arcul. Um, which is the first blockchain ecosystem built by the art community for the art community. And it's a toolkit to seamlessly facilitate the buying and selling of physical art um, on a permission-based blockchain. Um, and it's founded by the MCH Group, which is the parent company of Art Basel, uh, Luma Foundation, and Boston Consulting Group. Um, on her left is Alex, uh, Alex Estrick. Uh, he is a, a media theorist. He's a editor in chief at uh, Right Click Save, also a contributing editor to Flash Art magazine, also writing for FT um, and Freeze magazine. Uh, next is uh, Sean Rodway. Uh, he's the COO of MDRX, um, which is Mishkondereo's uh, tech division. And um, uh, again, a very interesting setup within a law firm. And Least, uh, last but not least, um, now I can see if I can get the pronunciation <laughs> okay, right. Okay. Uh, Claudia Schurch. Yeah, uh, thank you. Even my <laughs> past German school German is helping me a little bit. Um, <laughs> head of post-war contemporary and the 21st century art evening sale at Christie's in London. And obviously we have a sale coming up uh, Wednesday next week. 28, yes. That's next, that's next Wednesday, is it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, hopefully we're going to also have, obviously, afterwards, uh, there will be an opportunity to see some of these works. Um, so that's Absolutely. what we're going to be after the, 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 the discussion itself. Now, I want to, um, there's been, obviously, uh, I guess the, the NFT world and the, the language around NFTs and the market moves always from kind of sort of euphoria to doom, and it seems to be often very little in between. Um, and I think... Uh, when we look at the, obviously there's been an adjustment, a correction in, in many things. There's been a correction in prices. For those of you who are familiar with the Bored Apes uh, Yacht Club, which is these um, popular uh, series of profile pictures, NFTs, that you know, was, was in, incredibly valuable uh, and still are to a certain extent. But prices, sort of what we call the floor price, which is the lowest price um, uh, of a NFT at a certain point. In the, a year ago, it was about $260,000. Today, it's about $80,000. So there has been adjustments. But at the same time, if we look at the actual market itself, um, 24 billion or 25.1 billion of NFTs was taking place in 2021. So 2021 was the year of NFTs. This is where Christie sold the $69 million people. It was a, you know, a, a dramatic and, and fast-moving market. Uh, 2022 was where we starting to talk about crypto winter. There was talking about collapse, but actually, if you look at the sales value, still 24 billion was sold in NFT sales during the year. So the media, on one hand, as I was saying, I think is reporting on certain parts of the market. As I said, either it's doom or it's 
or, or it's, it's sort of euphoria or it's gloom, but actually there are things happening and the market is evolving and technology is evolving and our perception, I guess, about what NFTs are for is, is, is also changing. So I wanted to kind of start, many of you maybe have different perception of what an NFT is and maybe how that term NFT has evolved and maybe what it isn't. And I don't know if, if um, I can pass it to Bernadine or, or a start. Yes, start I, can, I, can, I can start a little bit because I, I do remember when the term NFT didn't exist and art on the blockchain did. So NFT comes from the term non-fungible token, which in essence is using the blockchain not for cryptocurrency, but for other metadata. Let's say it that way. So you're not storing information about uh, money, which is fungible, you're storing information about unique items on the blockchain. And so suddenly it got this hype of this, these three letters and everyone wanted to buy NFTs and it turned into a much bigger thing than what it was. But in essence, it's just storing information on a ledger. Alex, you, you, you said this, you know, we talked about before coming on this panel a little bit, this thing of it, NFT and blockchain, that you know, there was a sort of an aversion to one and an understanding of the other. And in a sense, they sort of complicated this, this relationship. I mean, can you elaborate a little bit on, on that thing? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, uh, I think the Oxford English Dictionary had NFT as the most popular word in 2021. Mm -hmm. And yet it still has a huge amount of resistance. And for me, it's, it is strange that there is somehow the blockchain, which is all about transparency and permanence and reliability, is something, you know, certainly the mainstream contemporary art world is, is, is digestible for that world. Um, but the NFT, which is obviously all about speculation and corruption, is is completely, you know, um, very still uh, receives a lot of resistance. Um, but the simple reality is that whether you call it NFTs or digital assets or digital objects or artifacts, uh, the simple reality is, you know, we we are now, I think, dealing with the reality of um, a digital art world. Um, or dare I say something which blurs the boundary between what was once art and what is what was once the culture industry, because a lot of the kind of artists that are crypto artists, so to speak, um, were historically ignored. And we can get onto more discussions about that, but I think it is one of the exciting things for hopefully the folks in this room is this idea that um, not only are we entering a world of digital uh, objects and a digital art market, but also a digital art market which serves a community of artists historically sort of disregarded. Um, they might have once been digital illustrators. They might have been game engine designers. Um, and I think the one final thing I'll say, because there was a big sale last, last week at Sotheby's of generative art, which has become, I think, the most, uh, I don't know if it's the most kind of popular area of digital art, but it's certainly the most lucrative, um, which is art produced using code are produced using autonomous systems. And of course, Sol LeWitt was um, producing uh, instructions for someone else to execute uh, a wall drawing in the 60s, um, which is effectively uh, an analog uh, work of generative art. Um, but of course, you know, now uh, there's vast communities of digital creators, creative coders, who are producing uh, very beautiful works of generative art, many of which look like kind of modernist painting. Um, which itself is, is palatable to a, a particular kind of market. So we're seeing kind of interesting um, uh, unveiling of previously ignored histories. And I, I like that because that usually means that more people are able to participate than before the NFT. So NFTs had a bad press, but I think we're kind of coming out of that. Okay. Um, moving on, um, Sean, in terms, in terms of the models that we are seeing emerging. I mean, there was again, maybe the first round of thinking about NFTs was a lot about the speculation around the actual digital asset itself. But obviously there's an underlying technology here that's being used by RQL that is serving a whole a very different purpose. But um, from what, what have you seen in the, let's say the last 12 months in terms of the trends emerging in how the art world, the broader collectible luxury industry are, are, are adopting NFTs and blockchain as a sort of as, as a tool for their businesses. What, 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 are, what are the trends you're seeing there? Yeah, and I think um, to pick up on what you said in terms of it being something that is speculative and and corrupted, I think that. Um, uh, we have to be careful about applying that to the underlying technologies as opposed to the way that it is being used. So certainly there has been um, uh, a decline in the amount of uh, sort of 
random JPEG NFTs that are maybe sold at high values and then uh, lose a lot of value and, and leave consumers sort of unprotected in terms of um, what assets they own. Um, but I think what we're, we're therefore seeing is brands having to take um, the utility of NFTs and the value of NFTs a lot more seriously um, and think about how they build that into an ecosystem for their users and, and consumers um, rather than as a one-off one drop um, that can, can sort of plummet in value. So um, I think that's a good thing, perhaps not for people who um, bought NFTs um, in the last couple of years, but now going forward, I think there's an opportunity for brands to use this technology in a really positive way um, to uh, engage more users and sort of build their ecosystem as a business, whether that's uh, creating new revenue streams, um, or actually uh, being able to save costs in some ways in terms of the way that they can um, generate assets um, or enhance their brand. So I think there's really exciting things that, that um, big brands now are doing to, for each of those three areas. Any, any examples of any luxury brands who's adopting this strategy at the moment? Um, yeah, I think um, there's a couple. Um, we could talk about um, Tiffany. Um, I actually really like what uh, Nike have been doing, um, maybe not falling into a, a a luxury brand, and, and there's been some uh, news on, on that this week in terms of some of the collaborations that they're creating. But they've really focused on user experience. And if you go and look at what Nike are doing, they're not talking about NFTs anymore. They're talking about um, assets that create value for their, for their users um, and collaborating most recently with Fortnite um, to put these assets into um, a game where they can drive huge amounts of, of adoption. So I think seeing brands do things like that is really exciting for me. Bernadine, in terms from, I mean, obviously, RQL is also adopting the underlying technology and, and NFTs, but from a different perspective. I mean, can you talk maybe just briefly sort of... Yeah, I think um, you're, you're completely right. Like a lot of times everything gets put in one bucket, right? And, 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 and going back to what Alex was saying about there's a movement of artists who were kind of not paid attention to that now have ways to produce creative code, etc. Um, but similarly, there are other ways that artists are using NFTs to document things. And in the case of Arcure, where it's the art market using the NFT technology um, to document things. But uh, what we've done differently is that we're using the same nuts and bolts without the cryptocurrency uh, consensus algorithms to validate the information. So where uh, other, other public networks use proof of work in the case of Bitcoin or proof of stake in the case of Ethereum, you can, um, or Tezos or other uh, public networks, we're using proof of authority, which is more about the reputation of the participants in the network validating that that information is true. So I won't go into too much technical information about this, but basically I think it's, it's dangerous to taint the entire thing based on one way in which people have engineered it. Mm. One thing that we do know is that it does work uh, at, a, at, a, at a technological level in making sure that the information is maintained, but that there are also some issues with how it went to market that need to be solved. Mm. And those issues can be the fact that people don't understand they have to store their private key and that they uh, don't understand there isn't a help desk to help you find your information on the blockchain because you are, it's self-custody, it's a concept of self-custody, um, to the, um, the fact that uh, sometimes people don't understand how to uh, interact with, with these applications with their wallet. Um, so, so, so there are lots of usability issues, but the underlying information is stored and 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 the, the sorry the reason i was mentioning wallets is also the, the main places of fraud and, and 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 theft come from people plugging into the wrong place and someone getting their access to their assets etc it's not that the underlying information is incorrect so it's it's really interesting to look at all of these different things and when you're early in a, a new technology a lot happens uh, people take advantage there's all these different things but you can through the through time, even from the moment when we talked about this uh, report back uh, earlier this year and and last year to now, you can kind of see what truths maintain some kind of validity over time. 
But in your case, I mean, a lot of it, uh, Alex mentioned the sort of evolution of digital art where it's been there for a long time. Um, but also that digital artist is now finding a space. We're going to come back onto the creative side uh, shortly. But um, in your case, this is also about the intersection between blockchain and physical art. Yeah. So, so in, in a sense, this is an infrastructure tool that is linking our existing traditional art world to the blockchain. In a, in, so, so what, what? Yeah, and, and we had a similar feeling of don't. Uh, we almost don't need to talk about the NFTs and the no. blockchain anymore because it's about the underlying functionality of digitizing these agreements and what you can do as a result of moving to a, yeah. an online system. Um, so why has the art market kind of been reluctant to use technology up to now? Sometimes it's also about who are the custodians of this information and where is it being stored and do I trust that uh, place where that information is being stored? And with blockchain, we actually can create trusted spaces for information hmm. which weren't there before. So do you think that part of this thing is just rephrasing or coming up with a new language for that NFTs in the sense of, I mean, Alex already mentioned it, so slightly actually, it's, um, yes, absolutely. And it uh, provides noise, which actually kind of distracts us from, from what it actually can do. Absolutely. So Arquels, uh, uh, we have a, a, a feature that's called the digital dossier, which actually is a lot of NFTs and smart contracts bundled together that are transferred to the person who purchases the work immediately yeah. when you pay through the system. But nobody, a, a digital dossier somehow resonates more with people. They understand, okay, I, normally when I purchase an artwork, I receive a dossier. And that is my, th those are my pieces of paper about the artwork. And in this case, I'm getting a digital dossier. Um, it just hmm. is interesting how wording can impact how people look at it. Perfect. Now let's move on to the creators. And um, Claudia, I want to just talk a little bit about from uh, your experience with it within Christie's to, to see, obviously we have seen over the last 18 to two, 18 months or 24 months, you know, the, the evolution of the, the digital, the, the creativity aspect of things. Hmm. But, how has that changed in, from, from your perspective, what you see within the auction houses, the way you curate sales? We're going to come a little bit back to the kind of model of, of Christie's 3.0, et cetera. But, but just purely from an artistic point of view, how, how has this evolved from Beeple in March you know, 2021? Is, that, is, is the interest still there? Is, is what type of artist are you now? Yes, of course. I mean, I wanted to follow up on what Alex was saying on... Um, how artists that perhaps had, in, had been forgotten or had been overseen suddenly have a spotlight. And I think when you think about the history of art, history of art is always revising itself. We're always expanding it, not only for digital art, but for, you know, like every single category. There's always a discovered artist. There's always someone that, like, that where we want to include. So for, for me personally, I think the way we see digital art, um, Artists have always tried to push the barrier with what they're working on, it, be it an installation, be it a performance, be it digital art. So it's basically, we humans tend to work with what we have. And um, the more technology develops and the more immersed we are in it, it's only obvious that people started you know, thinking about it differently and experimenting. Um, the sale of people was obviously a huge eye-opener in the sense of, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if anyone expected that kind of result. And so only seeing that kind of result and seeing the amount of wealth, the amount of interest there was, it kind of like opened this door where, there, as you say, there was this sense of frenzy, right, that is, is kind of stabilizing, which I think is a good thing. Um, so, so yes, definitely. I think we take it extremely seriously. Like we consider it, we look at artists no different way as we would look at more traditional artists. We think about their practice, we think about where are their careers going, we think, you know, we think about it big picture. We don't compartmentalize it as in, okay, this is digital and this is everything else. But, and, and, and sort of in that choice of um, when you put together a, either a dedicated, uh, you know, digital sale, NFT sale yeah. versus including maybe uh, these objects, so these digital objects in, in mainstream sales, but, yeah. but your choice of, of, of artists, what, 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 is that, what is that driven by? Is it driven by a collected demand that you, you, know, that you see, or is it, is it driven by a, uh, an opportunity to maybe give a platform to artists that has you know, had a long career in this field, but never, you know, doesn't necessarily had the, 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 the visibility? Well, yeah. what, what is I would it, uh... say it's both. Look, there's a team that is fully dedicated to that, to kind of really choosing and um, you know, like putting auctions together that are fully NFT, those with uh, 
We put on, on, a, on, a, on a new platform we created since September called Web 3.0. Um, and there, I was, I, was, I was actually talking yesterday to a team, and they really see it as an incubator. This is a space where you will see the most cutting edge, the most interesting artists. They're, they're you know, like really uh, working differently, not di with digitally, with the, within the blockchain, you know, like they're really kind of like pushing the boundaries. But, you know, like the market perhaps is untested at the moment. Um, it's like, it's like where you begin, mm -hmm. basically. Um, what they're looking at is, um, you know, like that the artist has has a track record. As in, he's been working. He doesn't. He hasn't just made one work, right? Like, what happens if you sell that and then uh, he leaves? So they they think about all those things. Then, when the artist uh, kind of develops a little bit more and has a bit of a more more of a track record, when the prices go up, you know, like Web 3.0, you would look you would look at works between five thousand to a hundred thousand uh, dollars. Once you cross that barrier, we start thinking about okay. So this artist, where should we place it within the all, all the other options that we have at Christie's? Mm. So, perhaps, so for example, I, um, who am heading the, the evening sale in London, last season we had an NFT by Tyler Hobbs. He's a very established artist. He has had exhibitions with very established galleries. You know, like it's, he has a track record that has been tested. Mm. Alex, interesting, you mentioned um, generative art and, and Tyler Hobbs is a generative artist. So tell, tell us a little bit about, for those maybe, what is it? And, and, and why do you think this has become the kind of phenomenon within the digital arena that actually is starting to you know, gain this kind of traction? What, 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 start with the definition, maybe. And so the ge generative art goes back to Max Benzer in the 1950s. Um, and there are a lot of artists, actually a number of whom in their mid to late 90s still alive, people like Frieda Nacker, uh, Manfred Moore, Vera Molnar, um, Michael Knoll, who worked at um, Bell Labs in the US. Um, and so since the sort of early 60s, actually coinciding with conceptual art and, and Sol Lewitz, it's funny, like artists and technologists were always working side by side, but the markets for their production were demarcated in a way that the NFT has, has kind of removed that separation. So now um, it makes sense that an artist like Tyler Hobbs, um, who it essentially is producing um, variations on what they were doing in the 60s can succeed. And we, have, we are seeing this, and you know, my magazine is recording this whole kind of golden generation of generative artists um, who now have a means of marketizing their work. And the NFT kind of unlocked this, this sort of, I think, kind of burgeoning potential for the generative art market. The other thing that I think is interesting, and, and Tyler Hobbs kind of, I think one of the reasons he's become particularly popular is that um, when his work is, he regards um, the printed uh, image as still the highest resolution output of his work. You can look at it on your phone, you can look at it on a screen. You know, in a sense, art after the NFT is a kind of liquid uh, enterprise uh, rather being, than being static and portable in the way that a painting is, is portable. Um, but um, we're still at a stage, it seems, where the, the print is still the highest resolution uh, form of digital object, which is really interesting, not least because, you know, I was, at, sorry, this isn't like to, I'm going to reference Philips. Um, Philips had a, <laughs> had a oh, show, of, um, had a sale last summer of generative art, um, and Tyler Hobbs was, was sort of printed out big. Um, and what was interesting about that was just the, the fact that um, this sort of, what we call a sort of born digital object, an object which had been produced in a natively digital state rather than, you know, um, on a canvas, um, when it was printed, it had the effect of, I think, basically renewing painting in a funny way because the marks that would, were being printed were not really conceivable or ha I hadn't seen those marks being made by painters. And of course, the obvious comparisons one might make is, is back to sort of post-painterly abstraction, something like that. So there's a kind of, you know, it's, it's a kind of curiosity in a way because this sort of time lapse, it's almost like the, the sort of last 50 years of, sort of post-modern art has kind of kind of collapsed back in in time, partly because you know in a sense there was no way of making a market for this kind of work, and so that's that's very exciting. Mm. Um, and I think you know it's clearly very important for for the art world in general to have a way of onboarding into the digital art market. And it seems to me that generative art has become that kind of um, gateway drug, so to speak, mm. which is. A, 
uh, obviously a great thing. <laughs> it leaves us a little bit with, um, I mean, you mentioned how NFTs, in a sense, has been unlocking and act as a catalyst for these artists to reach the market. On the other side, I guess, the NFT and technology has opened up from a collector's side to people who couldn't access or had difficulties access art. Art in general, and, and particularly obviously digital art, because it was, what do I own? How do I maintain it? How, how, what I do when the technology moves on, et cetera? Um, and I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about the, the, the audiences. And maybe I go back to Claudia a little mm -hmm. bit again. Um, thinking about Christie's and the, the kind of, you know, the people that are buying now NFTs or digital art, you know, are they from your traditional pool of collectors and clients or are they new? Um, if you think about Beeple, for example, and I assume this were significant amount of new people that are coming into the market. And, 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 and how that sort of sits within the Christie's strategy in terms of thinking about new audiences, next generation, et cetera. And who, who, who are the kind of typical, you know, without mentioning names, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, I think to answer your question, it's both. You know, in the end, the way we look at things and the way we buy, we don't buy, you know, in a single category. It doesn't fight that I love contemporary and I also like old masters. It doesn't fight that I love digital art and I like impressionism. We, we, we as human beings, we consume images and art in a very open way. And I think, um, and I think we see that very clearly, like when people that were interested in the Tyler Hobbs that we had in the evening sale were both people that collect digital art solely, but we also had very traditional clients looking at it. Looking at it. Um, we uh, sold 12 works by people privately and they all went to very traditional or, or collectors that collect in a traditional sense. However, having said that, Web 3.0, it does attract kind of a younger client, a very tech-savvy client, because of course, you know, like it has the wallet, it's like full on on the chain, uh, and uh, it does attract a lot of new clients to Christie's that perhaps, you know, would have, wouldn't have come through the traditional way. So I think it's both. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it, there's a big crossover be be between them. The fact that you enter as a, you know, a digital collector, we know that then they've been moving into other categories. So it's super interesting. Sean, in terms of maybe looking at other collectors, I mean, did you have a sense from the projects you're working on, the clients you're working on, in, in you know, who are the audiences? And again, I'm thinking this whole thing intersection between the traditional versus the new. I mean, it, it seems that the technology has an amazing ability to build communities uh, and very energetic and very passionate and very which obviously from a brand point of view, you mentioned Nike and you know, starting to think about tapping into gaming communities where Fortnite players can have their players wearing Nike shoes, I assume, or, or you know, all those things are with a value that can then potentially be sold. And I mean, there, there's this sort of, what, again, coming back to the audience, is this a, why are these, what do you think you know, the brands are doing? Is this a tapping into something new or, or is it to kind of maintain the existing, giving them something or maybe both? It's a really good question. I think that um, we have seen certainly with, with our clients, we talk about sort of Web3 natives and they do tend to have a certain demographic, usually younger um, uh, people pot potentially with interest in, in gaming, um, very tech savvy. Um, uh, in the way that they have grown up and, and consume media. Um, but I do think that that's something the, that in order to see adoption of this space, brands have to unlock. And going back to the earlier point, I think the way that they are doing that is by not making the, um, uh, the way that we collect and um, own digital assets something that is within a black box and hard to understand and described using the technology as opposed to the user experience. So I think that that is certainly uh, starting to uh, change change over time. I think it raises a really important question for the role of intermediaries, actually. Um, what role do intermediaries have in um, helping uh, a wider customer base in adopting um, uh, these technologies? Um, because really, they will, they will succeed if we can crack adoption. It can't just be the Web3 native crypto bro that uses these technologies if we do see Web3 as something that is going to be, um, you know, underpinning the future of the, the internet. How far away do you think we are from kind of a seamless integration between the traditional and, and you know, how far is technology? I mean, it's moving at such a fast speed, but how do we, 
how far are we away from where you, at the moment it's still kind of clunky because you still need to have a wallet you need to for those of you not familiar you suddenly have to remember tons of different words and if you lose them which you probably written down on a piece of paper you get it lost and you lost everything yeah. I mean it's sort of how do we come to a point where it's almost like we are, you, we are so used to having an Apple phone where you just click and your fingerprint and boom, we're in and we don't need to remember anything anymore. Mm. Are, are we getting closer to that stage? So my answer to that has actually changed recently with um, developments in um, well, generative AI, for instance. The, the speed at which we can now develop um, these technologies has massively increased, which means building um, ecosystems that allow the average user um, uh, to engage with these technologies. Um, I think that we're, we're now going to see that happen more quickly, coupled with the fact that brands have latched on to um, the market is not big enough if they only focus on Web3 natives. They need to create experiences for um, uh, a bigger user base. Can so, I pick up on something? Oh, yeah. I, I just... Um, I, we did a text on uh, digital fashion recently, and I just want to make the point that although you know the NFT had its moment in, in uh, 2021, um, last year was a big year for blockchain poetry, which has its own market now. People can sell poetry on the blockchain in a way they couldn't previously. This year, I think, is definitely the year for digital fashion. Um, and I know that a lot of um, luxury brands, you know, when you think that 75% uh, of uh, US children between the age of 9 and 12 have a Fortnite or a Roblox account, and they can buy skins from Balenciaga and Chanel and so on. Um, what these luxury brands are doing is they are sort of putting a down payment on the kind of mind space of um, these uh, potential future buyers who might not have yeah. kind of money at the moment, but they, you know, they have the, the potential market share in the future based on this sort of um, preemptive investment. Um, I think you know a lot of luxury brands, particularly in the fashion industry, which has has I think taken on this interest in digital fashion, sort of kind of trying to play with ideas across physical and, and digital. Maybe you sell both at once. Uh, maybe you use the digital um, as a way of getting physical customers. Um, so I think you know uh, it, I think the, the luxury fashion industry in particular is is the industry which is is playing. Um, probably most effectively with that um, yeah. and yeah so I was just going to build on that so we've just finished writing um, the web 3 and metaverse strategy for Selfridges and they have certainly bought into that in that they are trying to use these technologies to encourage people um, to in engage with with the brand and invest in future buyers of, of the Selfridges brand um, I would say that it's we have to be careful about combining digital um, or the metaverse with Web3 technologies. Though for, they are separate technologies. Um, where uh, So digital, we're often talking about the metaverse and combining physical and um, digital experiences, which you can do without using blockchain, NFTs, Web3 technologies. Often, um, like with the example you used on skins, um, it can be enhanced. You can en enhance a metaverse or digital experience with Web3, but it is important, I think, for us to make sure that we, we're using those terms separately. Well, also, AI is, is, is also has been developing for you know, m many decades on its own track, Web1, yeah. 2, or 3. And I think um, that's interesting in the sense that you have these sort of not competing paradigms, but sort of interlocking digital um, interests and technologies. And uh, yeah, so blockchain, NFTs, smart contracts are now, I think, uh, you know, in practice, going to be working together with generative AI. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens to me like I, I did had a look at the market, and the market for um, digital art produced by generative AI, I think, is currently higher than the market produced by generative art, which is the difference between people using a prompt to produce an image and people writing code painstakingly to produce images. So it just goes to show that, you know, um, if not in the technologies, then in the marketplace, mm. these, these kind of, um, these worlds are kind of overlapping. Mm. Um, and I suspect, you know, a AI might be the one that drives the direction of Web3, um, I'm not sure. I, I'd like to touch on that point because I think um, Web3 has gotten conflated with cryptocurrency quite a lot, but I don't think that's necessarily what it's about. It's kind of about a different way of thinking about ownership yeah. of your information online. So yes, the cryptocurrency 
infrastructure was used for that because you had your wallet with your cryptocurrency without needing an intermediary of banking to be able to interact with it. So you had this kind of disintermediation for want of a better word, but um, I, I think philosophically what Web3 was about, where Web2 created these giants of uh, Facebook, Google, YouTube, where you, where you conflated everything and they also, in order to be able to work, also owned your data to a certain extent. Web3 is philosophically about taking ownership of your data back into your wallet, whether that is your money or your things from your Roblox account. Yes. Um, and, and having that transferability and portability of your items. Um, so it, it relates to metaverse because it relates to how you interact with these 3D environments and how you interact with your digital self. But it also relates to cryptocurrency because you store that in your wallet. It, was that kind of what you meant? And, it, and it, I'm just trying to unpack what you were saying about the difference between digital and Web3. Yeah, certainly. So I would agree with that. I think that um, Web3 is about ownership. Um, it's about being um, and consensus um, and decentralization often, although, like I said, that leaves an interesting question for um, organizations that act as intermediaries. Um, but that is different to creating a digital avatar of myself, which I don't necessarily need to own. So that could be something that is useful to own in some context, but also um, uh, something that I'm quite happily, happy to you know, create on Ready Player Me and that digital asset exists in a virtual world in a way that doesn't need to, um, you know, it doesn't have value. So I, I don't need necessarily to own that. I, I agree, and one of the things that was so strange about the NFT boom was where value was attributed to these digital things that were almost like throwaway digital things. Yes. That you then suddenly had people putting value to them just because they were stored on a blockchain. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll move more towards putting things on a blockchain that you want to store and that have value. Exactly. Rather than putting things onto a blockchain because you want them to have value. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how many clients we actually turn away saying, no, this isn't a Web3 project. You can do this with Web2 technologies. Excellent. Um, I just want very quickly, you mentioned intermediaries. And I, yeah. I, I think, well, I guess we're sitting in, yeah. in, in a place of intermediaries. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. uh, They're very important. Many, many of you are representing intermediaries. And I just wanted to sort of, in the role of decentralization, um, what role do we, what role do we, these intermediaries going to have? I mean, it's still cutting out the middlemen, in the, particularly in the marketplace where the middlemen, in the sense, are the tastemakers. They are the one that creates value. Simply just take them out is, is, doesn't really create anything. So how do we, as intermediaries, and this is an open question whoever wants to answer, you know, what, what is the role of intermediaries in a, in a Web3 type of environment? Alex, I don't know if you want to, you look like you're sort of... So it's kind of to... contested, I would say, like my, the kind of, um, you know, the utopian in me wants to say that uh, what kind of blockchain NFTs and Web3 as a whole allows is for an artist to sell directly to their um, collector. Um, and that's sort of what happened in the early days of NFTs. And, and there are a lot of um, great examples of successful crypto artists who didn't rely on Christie's um, to make a name for themselves um, or traditional commercial galleries. Um, the thing about being an outsider digital artist is that not all, but a lot of uh, these artists want to also be inside. Uh, and I think that that it means that I think, you know, Chrissy's and Sotheby's in particular have been very savvy about acknowledging that. Um, and I think there is a competition going on between, as it were, um, the art world um, cherry-picking which artists it wants to include. Um, and I think something more profound, honestly, happening. I mean, you, you guys were talking about um, avatars. And one of the fascinating things um, about... Uh, the NFT, and particularly Board 8 Yacht Club, I'm going to go with CryptoPunks. CryptoPunks is a, is a 10,000 avatars produced using one algorithm. So it is an example of generative art, although it's never described as an example of generative art. Um, and that's um, interesting because it's also described as a collectible. 
So it is simultaneously a collectible and, as it were, art. Now that kind of problem is, is, is a new problem, I think, for something like the art world. So I think that there are sort of different discussions you can have. I think there's one in which traditional mediators can, in, se in a sense, dictate the terms of the future art market. And I think there's a sort of reality that what is happening is definitely an expansion of the bounds of what is um, creative production. I would say, and this is kind of my personal shtick, um, that, um, and there's a very good writer called Max Haven who wrote a book called um, Art After Money, Money After Art. He doesn't use the word art, he uses the phrase art money. And the thing about the NFT is it brings together art and money transparently for the first time. And these two, of course, have, have been linked together since, I don't know, however long you want to go back. Um, but that, I think that acceptance that we're dealing with a financialized um, object um, changes how we talk and the language we use to talk about this stuff. Um, but of course, being in, in this environment, it's very hard, in a sense, to break out of that envelope. But I think that is sort of, that's what I'm hearing from the artists themselves. And I kind of, I, I think uh, that's a good place to start. Okay, and bringing me on to my kind of, towards can, the final, can, you, you oh, want to Can add we something? still comment on intermediaries? Because I of think that's, that was you a really- You answered the question. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. I think you, you, you started on, on, on a really good point about this was about making it direct, right? About yeah. the artist and the collector directly. But we saw artists burn out from marketing yes. their own works. We saw um, people getting scammed. We saw misinformation on the blockchain, etc. So I see the role of intermediaries of bringing value to that market, right? Like it's, it, 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 they are ensuring that the information is correct. They are protecting the consumer. They are doing the legal checks legal checks to make sure say, that that's yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, just b b bringing actual value rather than just being the door. Claudia. Yes, I, I wanted to add two points. When you, when you, we say about, you mentioned the word cherry picking, but it's no different from contemporary art. It's like upstairs I have an artist that's gonna be the, for the first time at auction. How does she land at Christie's in an evening sale? There are, there's a lot of criteria that goes into it. A lot of thought, we look at the art, we look at the, at, 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 you know, like at her career so far, we look at representation, we look at demand, we look at like market dynamics outside of the secondary market. And I think that's exactly like our role as, as intermediaries, like kind of like, making sure that the right, uh, that we're offering the right uh, works yeah. to our clients. Web 3.0, it's a lot about giving our clients transparency. You can connect your wallet, you know, immediately. The KYC is all covered by us. You know, like, you know that, you know, like the backgrounds of, of bidders and sellers is being checked. Um, you know, like every bid is an open transaction. You know who and at what level is bidding. So I think, in the end, that's our role, like facilitating and making yeah. making it more a, more accessible and more and easier to navigate yeah. for yeah. clients. And, and the only thing I would add to both of those points is about the experience. Mm. Buying through Christie's is an experience, mm. as opposed to buying directly with with, with an artist, that, where you might not not only get all of the um, points around safety and security and transparency, um, but also I think that Christie's can create an experience. You can come here, you can experience the art, you can talk to people about it in a way that you can't if you are buying directly from an artist, perhaps. That brings me nicely to the, to, to the end. Um, thinking about I mean, intermediaries as a place that can, uh, entities that can create trust. I mean, trust has been broken and has been um, corrupted in, in many ways over the last 18 months, but actually intermediaries are act as that sort of safeguard. And um, now, the other obviously way of thinking about safeguarding is uh, the way the regulators and the government and everyone thinking about this space. Mm -hmm. um, we're starting to see sort of an increasing financialization of the market, whether it's um, collateralizing NFTs through the things like blend, uh, you have fractionalization, all of those things where regulators in different countries are looking at this space and saying, you know, is this, is it an asset class? Is it an, or is it something else? Where are we? I don't know who, who wants to pick that up. Bernard uh, Sean. Where are we in this? Where are we right now? I mean, it seems the regulator, obviously, in a very fast-moving space, they not really always. They always have to do the catch-up. But mm. where do you think it kind of leads us between a sort of the balance between self-regulation, where these entities, these intermediaries, act as the guardians of trust, versus someone else stepping in from the outside uh, authorities, thinking clamping down? Where, where, where do you think it's going to head? 
Well, one thing that's in the report that I, I was saying that some things rang true, I think that regulation can quickly also become outdated because the space is moving so quickly. So a lot of the countries who first regulated cryptocurrency are now having to update their regulations for crypto assets and digital assets and utility tokens versus the, uh, the, the ones representing money. So I think that the, it's going to be a fast moving space. But in terms of, for example, our project and why I think ARCO has come about, it's also about self-regulation and about making sure that you protect the consumers and you do the checks and balances to make sure that the, the market continues to tr be trusted and also uphold certain level of ethics, like protecting the artist, like uh, championing the, the, the creator royalties or anything else that might be there. So I think... There's an element of uh, governments will step in. They need to. They're going to keep updating the regulations. But also, we as an industry are going to keep updating as well mm -hmm. and, and thinking about how we can be better. Yeah. Can I just pick? Sorry. Um, August 2022, uh, the EU advisor on this, Peter Kirsten's, confirmed that NFT collections will receive the same treatment as cryptocurrencies, which would mean that exchanges who trade in NFTs uh, would be subject to the same stringent identity checks and transacting transaction reporting requirements as other ob obligated entities such as banks. So my sense is at the moment there's an attempt to align crypto with NFTs. A lot of people won't like that because there are lots of different kinds of NFT asset. Um, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I, I think it builds on that. Um, I certainly see uh, regulation as something that can really um, stimulate this space, actually, because it increases um, trust and the sense of consumer protection, um, but we have to keep it moving fast. And I have to say, in the UK, um, I do think we're doing a really good job of that. The work of the Law Commission and, and Sarah Green and, and building on that, um, really making recommendations around how um, crypto assets um, need a third class of property right, um, uh, sort of progressing that conversation really rapidly is, is only positive for this space, in, in my opinion. I think we can also potentially see uh, where regulators maybe don't um, drive innovation. If you look at the re recent Binance and SEC example, I am sure that there were things in Binance that um, uh, could have been done differently. Um, but the move to sort of immediate um, action and um, uh, sort of a very that there wasn't a relationship between them to improve uh, clarity on the regulation, it went straight to enforcement. And I think that regulators do need to be careful of, of doing that because of the impact that has on innovation. Perfect, okay, so before we um, open up for the questions for the floor, I'm just gonna have, as this title of the panel is what's hot, what's not on the blockchain, uh, is there an opportunity to I'm not sure if you want to focus on the not bit, but well, we'll, we'll see. Um, but but st start with Claudia. I mean, just quickly, there's something, you know, what's happening in the very near future that you might sort of want to get attention to? Well, in the very near future, we have, a, a, we have an auction on the 20th oh, really? of June. Please come, have a look upstairs. I think one of the most exciting lots we're going to be uh, offering is, as I mentioned, Sahara Long, first time at auction. She's a young British artist. Um, she did her residency at Palazzo Monti, which is an amazing residency in Italy um, that was hosted by Katie Hessel. Um, she is represented by Tim Taylor, currently has her solo show, so go across the street and see her. So it's a very beautiful self-portrait that we'll be selling. So very excited about that. Sure. Okay, so I'll start with what's not, and I think we've backed it up in this com conversation, terminology here. Let's stop talking about the technical terminology and start talking about utility and user experience. Um, for me, in terms of uh, what's hot, I'm really enjoying following um, artists like Andrea Bonacito, who's combining AI and um, NFTs in order to um, create, I think, something different in the market. And we're kicking off some work with George Fox in, in that sort of space as well. So really excited about those two. Alex, um, I think I think I've said too much. Anyway, I mean, I think you know, um, I think it's maybe interesting for folks to to look at perhaps digital uh, asset classes which they haven't previously considered. I think blockchain poetry uh, is potentially an area which has massive growth. One of the interesting things there is, you know, although. It's great that poetry and a single poem can sell to a single collector. What's interesting about that is that poetry is often tied to an image because an image is kind of a way of an inducement to reading now. Um, and 
Uh, all the poems tend to be quite succinct, so we're seeing kind of interesting cultural development in poetry. I think personally, um, digital fashion is very interesting because it's, it's not obviously um, playing by the same rules as the traditional fashion industry. And I would say that both with, with poetry, crypto art, and, and fashion, a lot of the reason new digital designers or creators are, are getting into this is that they don't have to rely on the kind of Illuminati who previously presided over um, these different industries. And so, yeah, I think those, uh, what's interesting about digital fashion is it, it, it actually exists in a curious halfway uh, house between fashion and digital art. So it's a kind of, I'd, I'd ask people to be open to these new kind of uh, markets because a lot of, at the early stage, those markets will be invariably highly affordable. That was a lot to think about. Um, so, uh, and, and I agree about blockchain poetry. The verse verse is amazing. Um, so in terms of what's not uh, hot in blockchain in my mind is um, a lack of clarity on what the artist wants. So some people bought a work and didn't know is it an NFT? Is it just the digital image? Is it a digital image that I can print off? Is it uh, something that can, I can use as my Twitter image? Or does the artist want me to maintain it in a certain way? I think that's the bit that frustrates me. Uh, I've collected generative art, and I have a conversation with some of those generative artists, and they'll say, I'll never want my work to be seen in this way in the metaverse. Where's that information? We don't have it. We don't know what they actually want us to do with these things. And so I kind of the experience of seeing art on NFT marketplaces for me is not how art should be seen. And so I kind of, um, that's what I'm done with, like the, the trading of little postcards, uh, little squares. Um, so what is hot in my mind is going back to what the artist actually intended and being able to store that on the blockchain of what they actually want the work to be, how they see it within their oeuvre, what, what, what the licensing terms are, etc. I was on a panel discussion at Art Basel just on Saturday where we were talking about this idea of having licensing tied to the token. So when you are transferring the ownership of that, of that object, you also transfer the legal rights that are attached to that object so you then know what you're buying. And I think that that's where we're going is more clarity on what are you buying and what does the artist want it to be. Fantastic. I think we'll leave with some, some questions. We've we got time, you know, we, yeah. Um, questions from the audience. Any, anyone who has a burning? Yes. Hi, and thank you, everyone. It was really fascinating. Um, Bernadine, it's a question for you, really. Um, I know you mentioned there was no help desk as such. And of course, regulators are working hard to make this kind of tricky terrain a little bit easier um, to traverse. But I wondered if there was anything emerging that would help new collectors to find their way around the blockchain and whether there are kind of bodies or, or assemblies that you see emerging to kind of give back a little bit and help, help new collectors. That's a great question. I think there are two initiatives. So there's kind of more the grassroots uh, initiative where collectors are helping each other to understand what's going on. And artists are also helping collectors understand how to take care of their wallets, having cold storage for their NFT assets, et cetera. But I think there's also an, a, a new intermediary coming in, whether that is wallet providers uh, and, and some of the crypto exchanges are professionalizing themselves to be able to offer these services. But I think at the end of the day, it's about trust. Who do you trust to be a custodian of this information? And um, there is a gap there. Uh, a definite gap, and I think it has to do with uh, larger trusted entities understanding the space, but also hardware limitations in terms of what you can do on your phone and, and, and how that interacts with these uh, ledgers. But there is a huge opportunity there. Thank you. Um, anyone else? Yeah. Hi, um, I wonder if the panel have any thoughts on fractional ownership, not so much from the perspective of an investment vehicle, but from other applications of, of fractional ownership from the perspective of access and opportunity. Anyone? Hasn't been successful so far. But I, I guess the question is, what is fractional ownership, right? Because some generative art pieces artists think of them as one whole piece and then you have the 10,000 CryptoPunks. Is that one work or is it? I assume that's not what you were referring to, but I mean. Yeah. You, you, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think that's what you're referring to. But um, <laughs> I, I mean, you can have these yeah, vast sets of, like you could have like 200 prints of a Dura print, for example. In a sense, that's what you're buying with like, uh, whether you're buying a CryptoPunk, you're buying, the one difference being that it's a, it's a fundamentally unique object which looks different. Um, but then so would a, a kind of one state of a Rembrandt over another state. So I think um, there's, a, there's a question about the serial, the serial object. Um, but as far as I know, uh, fra fractional ownership of um, digital objects, digital works of art, has not taken off in a way which is slightly surprising. It may have more success with physical artifacts. I don't but, know. but then with physical artifacts, can you actually divide it from an investment if you're only buying a part of a painting that is in storage? Don't know. It's a question. Michelle, do you want to have any? Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. Um, I, I do see there are, there are plenty of opportunities here, and I think when we talked um, earlier about accessibility, um, maybe this is a good use case for greater accessibility, um, but I think it comes with the challenges that we, we've just talked about around whether you feel the same value um, or, or can create that same value through fractionalised ownership. So I think that's probably some of the blockers to it, to it taking off. I just wondering again, thinking about fractional ownership of NFTs, for example, like a board ape. Um, I mean, from an ownership point of view, whether you own a fraction or whether you own the actual original, I guess the original owner can use this as a way of potentially as a fundraising capital tool to free up some capital and use for other purposes. I mean, you're starting to see a little bit in the lend, I mean, this financialization aspect, which is also happening in the lending side where you can pledge these NFTs and then raise money to use for other purposes. It's, I mean, this is something we see in the physical world as well as in the, in the NFT world. Um, I mean, Alex, do you think there's a particular reason why you haven't seen the kind of, I mean, do you see things evolving so quickly in the NFT world, why the fractionalization hasn't maybe taken off? I mean, in, with regards to digital assets? I'm just thinking more about what uh, Bernadine said. I, I think one of the things I've noticed is that um, we, had this, we did a, an, an interview actually with Tyler Hobbs who did a project called QQL um, last summer. And the interesting thing about QQL was it, um, it gave the collector much more power over the ultimate thing that they bought. So Tyler Hobbs would gift you the algorithm, so to speak. You would play with the parameters of the algorithm and you would become yourself what, what he termed a parametric artist. So I'm not sure, uh, I can't speak for fractional ownership. It's not really my uh, world. But the, shall we say, the subdivision of creativity or co-creation has become um, a big kind of thing in Web3, a way of inducing uh, collectors to participate more actively in the production of a work. Um, that has created some debate over the difference between, for example, generative art and parametric art, which is to say... Um, uh, some people believe that parametric art, which follows um, the example of, uh, for example, something like Zaha Hadid, which has used parametric design to produce buildings for many years, um, with generative art. And I think there are people who believe that parametric art is a subdivision of generative art. Um, and there are people like uh, Eric Calderon, uh, Snowfro, who created The Squiggle, which is one of the, the purest examples of generative art, who regards parametric art as fundamentally separate. Um, so. Yeah, it's just another area where I think the old sort of um, parameters are breaking down. Um, yeah. Question at the back. Um, I'm a bit of a biased um, you know, person on this one because I own a fractional um, um, ownership website in the UK. So if you look from a success point of view, we have a competitor in the United States called Masterworks, which I'm sure everybody knows about it. Um, I don't agree with a lot of things that they do, but they have $900 million uh, assets under management and they have been successfully buying and exiting paintings, although they go to mass retail clients, which selling a, um, you know, slash to a taxi driver maybe is not the right way to do it. There is definitely a demand, you know, for that, you know, uh, category. Also, the thing is that if you have the right art, uh, it's very difficult for a lot of people to access that art. So if it's really iconic, not many people can buy a $5 million, $10 million painting. Even if you have $100 million, you wouldn't want to put 5%, 10% into one painting. So it actually provides an incredible access that you couldn't otherwise access. So from that point of view, I think there's a lot of you know, stuff in the detail, but it, I think, works. So mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think probably where, uh, where uh, it's 
it's conceptually possible, but it, I think where you were saying it's not really working is like it's not had the traction that you would have with other NFT projects where you, it's just, and my personal opinion is that there's an issue with understanding what you're owning when you have that fraction of it. Because um, in my past job, I was working with museums and um, a lot of my work was telling museums not to do NFT projects unless they understood what they were selling. Because I think that often, if you sell a JPEG of a work that's in the museum collection, people are going to draw a, a conclusion of what that actually represents and what, whether that is a fraction of that work. And I think that, again, it goes back to why is it not working? Because we're not defining already from the beginning, what is it? What are we actually investing in? But are you really owning the physical asset or are you owning the SEC registered, a share in the SEC registered company that owns the physical asset? I guess the other thing with fractional ownership is we mentioned things like with, with NFTs or with blockchain, the whole aspect of utility. I mean, I guess part of the generational fractional ownership has been very much linked to the investment returns. But I mean, if you can start to link in other things, that is giving you access, uh, giving you privileges, giving you um, educational or whatever. I mean, playing a little bit on what you say in the fashion world which seems to be, you know, digital fashion is it's, it's an entry point to kind of provide them potentially with something that has a financial value, but also that gives them access to whether it's gaming or other things. I mean, I think there might be a, an, an evolution of that model that starts, because if you think about any emotional asset like art, if you're purely focusing on the financial, you know, you are cutting out probably the, mo the biggest reason why people are involved in this space in the first place, which is the emotional and the passion aspect. So if we can bring that, I guess, back into the equation somehow, then, then we have both. Then we are back to what the traditional world, like if you buy something at Christie's, you have both the financial value and hopefully the pleasure of owning the object itself. Mm. Any further questions? There's a question at the back. Um, this is probably a very stupid and naive question. There are no stupid questions. Uh, <laughs> um, I'd suggest that people engage with artworks on an emotional level help them at what it buys Where's the enjoyment? Where's the emotion? I bought digital art because of the emotional attachment I got but to, to seeing it actually, <laughs> in my per private capacity. But where did you see it? There's, like, technology has developed and now there's these almost screens that you can install in your house and you know like it almost when you look at it, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't own yeah. one, but it almost looks like you have a painting hanging, right? You can. It can be that you want to display it. It can be that you want to support that artist and you think what they're producing is so fantastic and it really moves you that you think I want to buy a piece because I want them to keep making stuff. You also want to look at it. Yeah, I, I, um, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, so, so, so this is me talking in my personal capacity. Yeah. And, uh, but there's a very different thing about buying a digital work that everyone can see. There's less of that showing off that I've got it uh, on a wall or something like that. Sometimes there is, but it can also just be the fact that you supported that artist, you have it in your wallet, you can put it in a metaverse gallery or whatever it is and legitimately have it. But I think... That's going back to the hardware issue and some of the issues with, with, the, with the user experience. The emotional attachment I had in that specific purchase was supporting that artist. Right. Yeah. Which is not something that people really talk about. You know, they talk about blockchain and it sounds very safe and guaranteed and tight and all that stuff. It sounds great, but it just wears the tightness. There's a couple of things, and, and it, clearly something profound has changed. Um, I would say that on the one hand, the meaning um, probably you now have greater access to the artist who, who sold you the work, probably, presumably. 
um, because you, in principle, this, this sort of digital art world is, is, there are fewer mediators. So I think, as it were, emotion comes from different angles. The other thing, you're, I think you're absolutely right. There's a, a really nice writer and sort of conceptual artist called Mitchell Chan who said that um, the NFT separates an artwork's expressive form uh, or t artistic form, the thing you display, the media, uh, from its commodity form. Um, and so you can see this, this, this move taking place away from art as an object to be displayed um, to an art to be an asset to be transacted. And I think during 2021, there was a, there was a stat which said that you know, the average time people held an NFT for was 30 days. That doesn't sound like the history of the ownership of art. So something fu fundamental has shifted, but I would, I would like to think that this kind of, it's not just a sort of faceless neoliberal um, kind of planet we're living on. <laughs> and I guess the only thing I would add as well is, um, and if it makes you feel better, it makes me feel old too, um, is how we're talking about art there in terms of a, something that we're trying to replicate the experience we have of art in this room today with a digital experience. What we're seeing is, um, and this is where we go back to the conversation about how the overlap with the metaverse um, comes into play is that we are seeing a generation that exists digitally as well as existing physically. So um, I think as we see that progress and people who grow up with that sort of experience of, you know, maybe we'll go for a coffee where we're not even in the same physical space, but you can come to our office and you can see what I've got in my office, um, and then I would care about what I would be able to display in that augmented or virtual reality realm. Excellent. I think we will, um, obviously, the, the other panelists might be hanging around a little bit, so if there is any questions, um, then, uh, you know, obviously, we can do that um, outside this forum. Um, again, we'd like to thank our panelists for their insights, for their feedback, for their overview of the market, and for you uh, coming here today. And now, uh, Nina, we are, are we... Just to close, we're sort of running out of time. Um, I feel like we could do with a few more days, actually, yeah. just to get through <laughs> all of that. But thank you so much for unpacking all of those incredibly layered um, thoughts into an hour. Um, I think we've all learned something today. Uh, if you want to dive deeper and uh, you're on the journey like we've been, please do download the report. There's a QR code on the leaflet in front of you. Um, but otherwise, we're invited now to, to go and view the evening sale, 20, sorry, the 20th and 21st century sale, and Claudia will be upstairs to answer any questions. So. Thank you all, and thank you to thank our panel. Thanks, Andy. Well done. Oh, Margaret, thank you. that was a lot of effort.